Thank you so much for the introduction and thanks to everyone that's here and uh, for the organizers uh, for, for the invitation for the, and for the very warm hospitality here in the Amsterdam. <clears throat> this is a map of the Pacific, which we're constantly drawing and drawing upon. It's a map of conflict, not of wars alone, but of shifting baselines of sea levels, thousand years of deadly unseen radiation, and mineral exploitation. It's also a map of resistance. Climate change and environmental disasters together pose some of the greatest threats to the livelihood, security, and well-being of Pacific peoples. Communities in low-lying island atolls such as Tuvalu and Kiribati, which are merely two to three meters above sea level, are particularly at risk from rising sea levels. At the same time, higher volcanic island nations such as Vanuatu are at risk from extreme weather events of ever-increasing intensity threatening their coastal areas where most people live. The material and economic damages from environmental climate violence are perhaps, in some sense, relatively easier to quantify. The climate, climate breakdown is also leading to profound cultural loss that may be less straightforward to trace, whether this is loss in the form of everyday lived experiences, skills, customs, songs, stories, or the loss of other intergenerational transmissions of knowledge. In the Pacific, contemporary climate emergencies are rooted in the foundational event of colonialism. In the long 50 years from 1946 to 1996, France, the United States, and the United Kingdom conducted over 315 nuclear tests in French Polynesia, Marshall Islands, in Aboriginal lands in Western Australia, Christmas Island in present-day Kiribati, and other places. Their combined impacts, people's resistance, and search for justice tell an ongoing story at the intersection of colonial power, environmental violence, and international law. Now, younger generations are taking that fight forward, such as the Pacific students fighting climate change who I met while as an academic visiting the University of South Pacific in Port Vila and Vanuatu in the summer. A refrain in the Pacific is often that we're not drowning, but we're fighting. But what is this fight about? What are its contours against whom? And what can be global strategies to, to actually build coalition and solidarity on this? This is kind of what, uh, what, what, what I'm here to speak about today and, and, to, and to focus on. Some of the largest carbon major companies in the world have known for a long time about the significant adverse impacts of climate arising from their dangerous industrial activity. Moreover, evidence has come to light to suggest that there has been dishonest portrayal and withholding of information public from the public for over 30, over 30 years. A recent study that, that was in the newspaper just a couple of days ago was about um, a, a new shift, right, around a kind of weaponization of misinformation, uh, which was about climate denialism in, 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 in Twitter. Um, this draft study from, the from Brown University found that 
is, is suggesting the substantial impact of mechanized bots in amplifying climate denialist messages that are going around. The study didn't really say you know, who they can be attributed to, but this is happening every day, right? So what? So, so these, this is the kind of the, the, the conflict that, that, that we're, the stage where we're at. I wish to invoke only those theories that might help us and others better understand the demands of justice here. In environmental terms, I call the state of affairs an ecological impunity. Impunity, as Baltazar Garçon, the Spanish jurist, has, 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 has written, is the absence of justice, an offense against the rule of law and the dignity of victims, second only to the original crime itself. Impunity has come to define the perpetuation of gross human rights violations perpetrated against civilians and citizens where victims are denied the chance to seek justice. Ecological impunity extends that definition to include assaults against the environment, such as ecocide, that are yet to be recognized as international crimes. Therefore, a state of ecological impunity is one in which crimes such as ecocide are allowed to continue. But how can architecture and spatial practice work to achieve the broader aim of environmental justice by fighting impunity and forms of ecological impunity? For us, this is an ethical question about how we can hold ourselves within the limits and ruptures of taking political action. As interpret, we're a group of architects, spatial designers, and researchers that are confronting this question, along with many others, in refracted in all its multiplicities, futurities, and demands. Interpret's work is to take investigations against environmental destruction in, in various parts of the world. The project is in, interested in using environmental investigations as a way to organize, to support, and to act against contingent platforms for trying ecocide cases. Remembering that given that ecocide is not yet a crime, there isn't a perfect forum to take this, this, this criminal offense to. So we're, we have a double fight to take. Not only is it, is it a state of impunity where there, isn't the, where there isn't the legal forum, but there isn't the crime to actually address this. So we, we, we simultaneously have to develop the, the, uh, the crime, have to develop the law, but also produce the evidence. And this is necessary because this creates what we could also call like an impunity gap, right? And we have to sort of like feel where that, where that gap is because where, where actually law is and how it's implemented or how it might not be implemented. You know, what, what are its contours and, and, and what, what are these gaps? And these are precisely the matter of, let's say, uh, a sort of political action rather than purely sort of uh, legal strategies, right? So as civil society, we must sort of influence or try to bring this kind of change as opposed to leaving it to, let's say, lawyers or, or politicians. Therefore, as a spatial research group, we're also part of a campaign uh, called Stop Ecocide that was, that's led by, that was started by the barrister Polly Higgins before her untimely death last year to criminalize ecocide as a 21st century crime. We do so in order to send a direct and distinct message to governments, corporations, courts, and tribunals, including the International Criminal Court, and to the public at large. The term ecocide isn't new. It was coined to describe the widespread use of herbicides such as Agent Orange 
used by the United States during the Vietnam War. In the 1990s, the International Law Commission, which was tasked after Nuremberg to produce a body of law to, to protect against crimes such as genocide, um, set, to, set to actually produce what, what, is, what was known as the Draft Code of Crimes Against the Peace and Security of Mankind. In this draft code, in Article 26, recognized environmental destruction as a, as a standalone crime. But this was opposed by three countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands. And it's the, in the adapted version of, of the Rome Statute, which eventually led to the establishment of the International Criminal Court, uh, environmental destruction is, is nowhere to be seen, other than as a section in Article uh, 8 under war crimes, which, um, which has a very high threshold, has, has never been tested. So, Ecocide as a, as a peacetime crime, right? Let's say uh, the, the kind of violence that, 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 that you know, the, our first map of the Pacific showed is, is, is missing. Um, and this is what Polly Higgins' work was all about. And, and towards this, she submitted an amendment uh, to the Rome Statute at the United Nations uh, in 2010. And since then, with Jojo Mehta, an environmental activist, she set up uh, the Stop Ecocide campaign, whose, whose twin aims is to raise awareness on this, but also to, to, to work on amending and introducing a, a new crime. So for this, we, 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 we lobby uh, and we participate. Uh, so here in the Netherlands, The Hague, because that's where the, 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 the ICC is based, but it's also where the Assembly of State Parties of the court uh, meets to, to uh, uh, every, 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 every December. <clears throat> now, what's unique about, let's say, international justice and let's say a crime of ecocide is, is this, right? That it's designed to hold individuals to account. Now, we, we, we're, we kind of think about, let's say, in, in, let's say in the environmental, it's a climate emergency, so on, sometimes in an abstract way, right? Like, you know, I eat, mice be, you know, you know, it's, happen it's humanity is responsible, or humanity is, 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 is uh, to blame, or, or, or again, humanity is suffering, right? But it's not about that. It's, a, it's, about, really sp it's about particular people, right? So similarly, as, as we should shift on, on sort of understanding, you know, that, or, or, or sort of rethinking, right, uh, the climate emergency is not something abstract at all, it's also important to focus on, let's say, you know, thinking about, let's say, what kind of criminal responsibilities can be actually um, assigned, you know, within the, let's say, the, 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 the legal standards that, that we have today. And in that sense, in that sense, a crime of ecocide has a potential, right, to actually be a deterrent. Um, it's possible to, to take individuals to court and hold them responsible. The prosecution and the investigation process is something else, right? So this is a kind of demanding of justice. It is at the, at the first and foremost to name the crime, to give the, the crime its true name. But finally, ecocide is also about a kind of earth jurisprudence, right? It's not only about uh, the law in terms of courts uh, and so on. And I'd, I'd like to read you know, a, a couple of words from Polly where she, where she writes that when, when ecocide might be enacted in the future, that it shall protect the rights of the natural world, living systems, the global ocean, biosphere, migrant and indigenous of our earth, current and future generations. 
So it is a horizon concept, right? Which which doesn't mean that that you know we 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 it, it's going to solve everything, right? Just similarly as the International Criminal Court is is hardly a perfect system, but the ideas behind it and and how it came to be is nothing short of of uh, of a total uh, uh, miracle, you know, given the kind of geopolitics that we were facing in the 21st century. <clears throat> So ecocide, even though genocide, crimes of aggression, crimes against humanity, and war crimes are, are today recognized as international crimes, ecocide is a, is, remains a missing crime of our time, the crime of our time. <clears throat> Gathering and examining evidence of ecocide requires a shift in perspective in order to understand conflict as a territorial phenomenon. It also involves re-examining the material transformation of landscapes in ecological terms. But it also involves working with and organizations that work very closely with vulnerable communities. In the next part of uh, my talk, I'll present three cases where, where, th where there's a lively dialogue between evidence and advocacy. We'll take a journey that moves geographically from, from multiple locations across time, but also through scale. There are no perfect legal forums. You know, in each case that, 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 that I will sort of share with you today, there, there, these are cases where there's ongoing you know, long-term work uh, where, where, where building an evidence file might be a part of that process of, let's say, seeking justice, as opposed to having a perfect court to take a, a case to, especially when it comes to criminal justice for, for some of the reasons that I've outlined um, before. Finally, these are civil society-led investigations, right, which Neil um, Weisman from Forensic Architecture has referred to as a counter, count, kind of counter-forensics, right? But here, it is not only about state violence, but also against corporate crimes. And indeed, ecocide forensics, as, as, we, as we want to describe it, right, allows not only this, this uh, a kind of forensics for uh, an existing legal forum, but it, it, is, it is actually geared towards producing a new forum altogether, a new crime altogether. These were footages that were shared to us uh, by um, a group of Polish activists who were, were fighting the Polish state in protecting the forests, the, the, one of the oldest primeval forests of Europe, uh, the Bielowice forest, right? Uh, these are actually footages that were taken by the uh, uh, the activists, where where the activists had had sort of done a sit-in protest at the at the at the forestry department site, but were then taken by the Polish state and accused of criminal offenses of of disturbing the peace and uh, etc. Right. So this is sort of like the beginning of the of the first case that was or, or discussions that we had with uh, uh, the Biennale Warszawa and the Modern Art Museum in Warsaw uh, about, about sort of the development project there, which is part of a long-term residency that we're doing with, between these two institutions in Warsaw. And, uh, and we were thinking that actually a, 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 a piece of research that we've wanted to do for a long time is actually looking at, you know, well, well what are the precedences, right, of, of, of actual attempts at prosecutions? For you know, for for international crimes, right? For for environmental destruction, where especially given that ecocide doesn't yet exist, 
So we produced uh, the, the, an exhibition with these two institutions called Race and Forest. Um, <clears throat> and the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the premise of the exhibition, uh, which I will sort of explain, which I'll get into a little bit, uh, was looking at how, uh, how what, the, to reconstruct the very first attempt, right, of, um, of, a, of, a, of, a, of attempts at a prosecution. Uh, and this, this comes from a case called uh, 1307, which was a case that was, uh, was brought forward by Poland against Germany, you know, at the United Nations War Crimes Commission. Uh, this sort of right after the first war, the, after the Second World War, and the UNWCC is a kind of grandmother of the of the ICC or kind of international sort of criminal justice sort of uh, courts. And in Poland's around 8,000 cases that they they submitted um, or, or they were sort of building, uh, Marian Muscat, who was the, uh, the, the 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 main investigator on the Polish prosecution side, right, who went on to work on the Eichmann trial in uh, in, in in Israel. Uh, sort of highlighted one crime, uh, at, particularly out of a number of them, called 1307. And this case was uh, a case where uh, Poland accused of, of German forestry scientists of destroying Polish forests for the Reich, right? This is, uh, this is never something like this that had been tried before. Um, and so we, we reconstructed, right, going through various archives in the UK, just at the Wiener Holocaust Library, but also the Polish National Archives, to actually reconstruct, you know, how this case was put together and, and what actually, what kind of judgments were passed, right, as a kind of very first precedence. Um, the evidence, we, we also reconstructed the evidence, which uh, included um, uh, Polish forestry scientists giving uh, testimonies, right, against the Germans. And one of, the, one of their key arguments was that actually the Germany, German, Germans had invented scientific forestry, right, and which was eventually then used by various other colonial powers all over the world. And the Polish sort of forestry scientists, excuse me, accused the Germans of actually using forestry science as a kind of weapon of war, right. Uh, particularly, the evidence was was brought together uh, that that you know we did this very detailed archival research uh, on this one particular gazette called Waldenholz, right, which was produced by the by the Germans, uh, you know, on on the occupied Poland, the general government, which on a weekly basis, you know, very, in very detailed prose and and with logistically sort of explained, um, you know. What was how they're economically and 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 methodologically actually using the uh, sort of uh, sort of taking the forest and turning it into timber and various other products um, in the in the in the war effort. Um, so this also included sort of reconstructing you know where this uh, this this uh, this timber was used and and how the forest was destroyed right. Uh, and all of this was 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 presented as as well. Some of this was presented as evidence in this in this uh, in building this case file. Um, what we found from this uh, investigation that only one person was eventually uh, put on trial and sentenced, who, who was Josef Bueller by the Supreme National Tribunal of Poland, where among a litany of crimes that he was accused of as the head of general government, uh, economic destruction including the destruction of Polish forests, was part of the, his charge sheet, right? So the irony of it is this, 
you know, which was not lost in the Polish context, A, that it was the very Poli fascist Polish state today that has been destroying the, their forests and, and using law to go, get, go against the activists. And B, on a much broader scale, th this was in fact uh, arguably the, the first and still the last time uh, you know, someone has been actually put on trial for destroying forests, right? We're at a time where the Amazon is burning. You know, we're at a time where, where, where massive deforestation you know, across the world has been taking place, where oil palm plantations you know, are, are destroying you know, uh, tropical forests all over, all over, the, all over, the, all over the global mm -hmm. south. Yet the, case, yet the case of an environmental crime comes from the, this archive of the, of the Second World War. But something far more sinister was happening, which was that as we sort of delved into these archives, we started finding uh, um, sort of essays and articles written by these scientists that worked uh, uh, in, 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 in occupied Poland, uh, where sort of environmental racism, right, and ethno-nationalism and uh, settler colonialism sort of combined, right? Uh, this was an example that we found in the, in the, in the Waldenholz archive, where uh, at the very top, the scientists compare uh, a typical a typology of a German factory, uh, which is modern, clean, and efficient, and below compares it to a Jewish uh, factory, which is dilapidated and, and sort of falling apart and so on, right? So, so, so this is this is sort of like what was sort of happening in the in the background in this in 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 in, the, in these in these documents. Um, the the title of the exhibition "Race and Forest" comes from uh, an article that we found called "Race and Forest," where the author uh, sort of in in describes right the occupation of Poland at this time, and this is perhaps a, a map of occupied Poland during the Second World War that has never been seen before, uh, where where rather than showing the conflict in, in terms of troop movements and, and sort of political lines and so on, the, this, this, uh, the, the author redraws the, 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 a map of this, a key sort of site of the, of the war in ecological terms, right? So what we see here are, are in his sort of uh, um, understanding, sort of climatic lines, right, between the east and the west of tree species that are eastern and western you know, where he reframes the conflict as a war of the Germanic people against the Slavs. And in, in a war in which uh, the nature-loving Germans would defeat the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Eastern peoples, and in a war where nature would be called to fight on the side of the Germans. This is a language that we see today in, in sort of eco-fascist sort of uh, uh, online sort of, you know, um, Sort of presence, and in fact, if you look at uh, you, the manifesto of, let's say, the the the, the person that uh, had uh, killed uh, in, in the, what took part in the or were perpetrated the Christchurch shootings in in New Zealand, you know, you know, was was actually writing about sort of ecofascism, right? That that the planet had, is now too too full of of you know uh, the the pristine nature of of their of of. Australia or Europe or the United States is being taken over by immigrants in this kind of rhetoric, right? So, so this was already taking place at this time. Um, what we found is that, is, that, is that 
you know, however, the, the narrative of the Holocaust was not in these documents, of course, right? So what we found was that if we were to actually locate, you know, the, the, the locations of the extermination camps in Poland, they were either all inside or next to forests, right? The, so so this, this crime of, of the destruction of forests had something much more sinister happening in the background. Um, this is a, a, a piece of research that we did with the, with the Warsaw Biennial uh, in collaboration with the, with the, the Helmno Holocaust Museum, uh, where, where, where we found that actually there was, a, uh, um, there was the first, just to go back here, the very first uh, camp of the Holocaust, Helmno, on the, on the very top left, uh, was like a laboratory, right? This is where not only the efforts of methods of mass murder were first tried out, right? but also methods of hiding the evidence of crimes. And uh, from the testimony of, of one of the scientific foresters who worked at the site, we found that, in fact, uh, in fact, bodies of victims were turned into dust and used as fertilizer to plant uh, uh, in a secret reforestation program. Uh, but these forests, which have been marked in archaeological maps and talking to archaeologists that, that were working on the site, are not memorialized, right? They're not part of the memorial. Uh, a memorial which is visited every year, uh, well, I asked this question to the, to, the, to, the, to the museum that, well, who visits Helmno, right? It's not Treblinka and Auschwitz, which is much more known in the narrative of the Holocaust. And his response was that uh, this camp is visited, the most visitors that he gets at this camp, they, they, that they receive at this camp, are Israeli Defense Force soldiers that, who come there every year en masse as part of sort of this initiation sort of a um, sort of um, prog program. So what we did here is where we reconstructed, uh, I'll just show you a very small clip. Uh, uh, so this is from 1994, a reconstruction of the forest, which we call living evidence based on the photo interpretation of the 1958 aerial image the archaeological survey identified two forested areas within the camp both dating as from 1942. Building on the archaeological works and location of existing structures, we undertook a field examination of above-ground evidence in Ruzhovsky Forest using airborne light detection and ranging, or LIDAR, which is the first survey of this kind carried out at the Helmna Forest Camp Holocaust site. The survey generated a precise point-cloud-based photogrammetry of tree cover of the area containing the 1942 reforestation areas. If the bones of an unknown number of victims helped the forest grow, then today they are living evidence of the crimes perpetrated here. The project goes on to then use this uh, LIDAR scanner to actually look underneath the forest floor to be able to, to, be able to look for the microtopography of the forest and to look for signs of, uh, of, of mass graves that, that might be there. Um, <coughs> One 
want to move now to the second case, and it might seem that it's, we're making a big jump geographically uh, and, 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 and in terms of the context, but, but I hope you will agree with me that perhaps it's th that, that is not the case. The violence that's entangled with ecology, settler colonialism, resource extraction, racism, are all alive and present. If you speak to anybody in the Pacific, as I've done, and, and conscientious persons in the Pacific, as, 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 one, as, as I would have, I have done, they'll tell you about the longest-running self-determination conflict that's going on in the region, where people are fighting for the right to self-determination against Indonesia, where the rich forests, one of the largest tropical forests in the world, and crucial, that, are, that is crucial for climate and, and minerals, are, are up for grab. This is in West Papua. To, to this day, an occupied territory uh, in, in Indonesia um, under, under, under Indonesian control. The UN logo in, in, this, in this, uh, this image of protest is, is, is crucial here, right? And I think it makes a, a strong link, right, between, the, between let's say, the, 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 the global scale you know, of, the, of the kind of violence that we're speaking about and, and very particular demands of, of, of people in, in a, 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 and, and their social sort of struggles, right? And that UN logo is not there for any reason, right? The UN logo that the West Papuans are, are, are sort of showing here in, in, their, in, their, in their first self-determination is about the fact that how the UN sort of, uh, uh, the, the decolonization process and actually led to a plebiscite in which uh, the West Papuan people were categorically denied the, the right to self-determination uh, you, you know, uh, under the United Nations rules, which the Indonesia nevertheless today, today um, claims as sovereign state. And, and in a context where the Indonesians basically took the baton of colonialism from the Dutch and carried this forward, right? And it's a situation where, where, where the Dutch state refuses to speak out against Indonesia in international forums on the question of Papuan self-determination. In this struggle, mine, uh, and mining played a very important, uh, continues to play a very important role. In this, in Rosa Mawand, who's a, who's a West Papuan uh, intellectual, uh, in a meeting that we'd organized with her, uh, said, and, and with the international lawyers for West Papua, said that Grasberg mine, which falls in this fault line of, of mines that go across the Pacific uh, was the first weapon, right, against the, against, the, against the Papuan people. It's run by Freeport and the Indonesian state, and it's the world's largest gold and copper mine together. And, uh, uh, and it was actually handed over by Indonesia to, to, to this mining company while the territory was still under dispute um, at the UN. So, on the site where we've been where we've been working for, for where we've been engaged for, for many years, uh, we conducted a, a remote sensing analysis, where we, we were in order to fill this gap of actually showing that there's there, there had not been really a comprehensive study that shows the cumulative violence, right? This long-term, spatially you know distributed and temporarily kind of stretched kind of violence that's been happening at this site of the mine since since the 70s and the 80s, right? Uh, and, to, to, and, and also it is a site, right, where um, journalists are not allowed, uh, where it's very difficult to, to, to go and, let's say, conduct field work. Uh, remote, remote sort of sensing became a very useful tool in order to sort of to better understand and, and produce sort of uh, uh, evidence that could actually stand up in a, in a, in a legal context. 
Um, so what we did here was we, we, we sort of, you know, thought about satellite data as a kind of, a, a, you know, in an exemplary fashion of, let's say, ecocide forensics, right, as a kind of a, a, um, a CCTV, right, that's sort of looking at, uh, looking at the earth from, from all, all around, right. Uh, satellites that were m maybe perhaps even, you know, deployed in order to un understand sort of very benign landscape, co uh, you know, cover change, right? So it is the, and, and it is those same tools that can be actually, you know, used to serve or, or, or to support environmental justice work. Uh, but it's different, right, than, than how satellites are used in human rights work often, where you see sort of before and after image, where we see you know, the highest resolution, the better it is, where you could see a, you know, a pin or, or whatever, something really, really detailed, right? In this case, what we were in fact interested in is, was to be able to look at how, let's say, where we could literally kind of, you know, materially trace, let's say, how the, um, the, the, the mine tailing had destroyed forests, right? And the ecology of Papua over, since the 80s to the, to the present. Uh, so what you see here, for example, in red, um, is is um, is is sort of veg healthy vegetation, but but uh, and and what is in yellow and green is is not. Uh, this work we did in to in twenty uh, we finished in twenty fifteen in twenty sixteen we conducted a, a, a what is called ground truth in in, in satellite uh, in remote sensing work where you want to connect, you know what is happening you know at the place to to the satellite data as a kind of triangulation of the evidence. Uh, where we worked with the Amungme People's Tribal Council. So I, one thing I forgot to, to mention uh, earlier is this, the land on which this mine is located is the indigenous land of the Amungme and Komoro people, uh, which, which is not recognized by the, by the Indonesian government. So these were sort of some of the images from, from the site. Uh, so we were able to work with the, with the tribal people's, Amungme People's Tribal Council to actually get access um, to the site. Uh, the following year in 2017 with Polly Higgins, uh, with the United Liberation Movement for West Papua and with, uh, with the, the Spanish jurist Braltaza Garçon, we, and, and with the support of the government of Vanuatu who remains to this day the biggest supporter of Papuan independence in the Pacific and in the world, we, we, or, we, we, we organized an exhibition at the International Criminal Court's annual meeting, this time held in, in, in New York, where we were, we were going to present the evidence that we'd been collecting, along with uh, um, along with testimonies that were being sent to us, working with uh, groups like Papuan Papuan Voices, and I was Mifi, who worked very locally on the ground on, let's say, uh, the the violence of oil plant, palm plantations and so on. The idea was that we would organize the very first meeting with the leader of the West Papuan Independence Movement, would actually be able to sit, you know, at a meeting of the International Criminal Court and 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 be able to speak about the, the violence in Papua. However, uh, our plans were thwarted by the Indonesian government, and uh, uh, the exhibition and the and the events were were blocked, uh, you know, at, at, during this time. So, so we, we, we could not actually um, do any of this work. However, the, all the exhibition material we, we 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 gave to the Free West Papua campaign, who are operating out of Oxford, where Benny Wenda, the the current leader of the Papuan independence movement, has been exiled and lives. Uh, which, was sh which was then shown at the, the Labour Party conference uh, a couple, two years ago. And we're now planning to, to restage this exhibition in Port Vila in Vanuatu in, in, in the summer. Um, in 2018, uh, 
in order to go back to the to the to to working on 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 how to on on strategies on getting towards a legal uh, case on on the mine and, and the violence, we organized a, a workshop uh, with uh, in in Tromsø in in Norway uh, with. Uh, West Papuan leaders, uh, community elders from the Amungme tribe, but also with uh, with <clears throat> our colleagues from London Mining Network, Veronica Koman, who's a human rights lawyer who has an Interpol arrest warrant out on her from the Indonesian government right now and is in hiding. Uh, but along with uh, our colleagues from uh, we're colleagues from the Sami Parliament and Sami lawyers, and and this was very much what uh, what our Pap what 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 the Papuan our Papuan friends wanted was to be able to meet and, and work with uh, the, the indigenous sort of colleagues, right, from, 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 the, from Europe, from the north. Uh, the strategy, uh, the meeting, uh, well, I'll, I'll show you very quickly a, a, a couple, of, couple of seconds of, of Mama Yosef Alomang, who is a 95-year-old woman who's a, a Mungme activist who has been fighting against the mine all her life. Um, uh, who, who came to? Who, who was who was really amazing that that she she uh, she came to 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 join us, uh, speaking about 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 the work that the, about you know the, the situation there. Say protect, not protest. I'll, uh, this is a much longer uh, sort of conversation, but I just wanted to show you very, very quickly a moment of that. The painting that, that uh, Mama Yosefa referred to is a painting by the by the, the Sami uh, artist Brita Marakat Laba, uh, in which in which there is a there is a confrontation right that happens you know in, in the north, where where Norwegian policemen are flying down like crows and turning into sort of taking human form, and fighting the the Sami right, and uh, and when Mama Yosefa saw this painting and she'd never seen the work of I mean she'd never been to the Arctic or never seen the work of, of this artist, she took one look and, and she, she, she looked at us and she said, that's what happened to my people. You know, so, I mean, you know, th this, this was like a moment, right, where, where I think like it, it was really transformative for, for, for all of us to sort of be able to spend, spend, this, spend this time with her. Um, we're right now in, the, in this long struggle, we're right now in the process of, uh, of working on a legal case uh, that sort of brings together a lot of these steps that, that, that have been ongoing um, and much more needs to be done. Um, just to give you an example, right? Like in this work, there's there's not a, no any no no easy resolution uh, at all, which can be really frustrating and uh, in, in, in to, to well, to say the least, for even someone a group like us that are working on the evidence side, you know, 
you know, not to mention, you know, the, 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 the everyday violence that people have to, have to, have to live through. Uh, this brings me to, to the last case that I wanted to, uh, uh, to, 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 to share with you, which sort of uh, is again a project that's sort of ongoing and, and I hope kind of brings together and brings us to, to, to a place where we can, before we move to, uh, uh, to, to Anya's um, talk. And uh, this project uh, is uh, called uh, Climate Crimes. Uh, and this is a, a work that we're doing uh, in Ogoniland in, in Nigeria. Um, uh, it might seem that that uh, that mining in in West Papua or 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 sort of oil pollution in Nigeria isn't directly related to let's say the the concerns of climate justice, but 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 we would argue that it's in fact the opposite, right? So I mean, on the one hand, this idea of the front line, right, which which isn't only about let's say a front line that's sort of geographically, you know, at sites of consequences, or, but it's also where 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 extraction takes place, right? It also it also follows this logic. You know that 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 um, that that came to us when we when we were uh, working on the on the uh, on on the reconstruction of case one three zero seven, where we saw that like you know in that in that logic of violence, right? You take environmental racism, you take settler colonialism, and you take you know resource exploitation and so on, and you're going to end up with with you know if not a genocide that that happens all at once, but something that's much more slow motion, right? Uh, and 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 which which would also term as as a, as a kind of as a kind of ecocide. Uh, we're really at a, at a really fertile time, right? Where where there isn't a definition of ecocide. In fact, one of the worst things, and I put that in quotes, that happened to the the legal term genocide, right, was that when it was codified into a legal term, you know, some of the original ideas that Lemkin, who coined the term. Uh, was was actually left out, such as you know we understand today genocide to to only include, you know, an attack with an intention to destroy you know a particular group based on on their uh, their ethnicity you know uh, um, etc. Right, it's a, it's a, it's an identified population in you know with the intention of destroying them. So these 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 have to be all of this has to be really met. In order for genocide to be actually recognized, you know, as 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 an international crime, right? Uh, but Lemkin's definition also included cultural destruction, you know, as as a as a as a crime, right? And it and it wasn't only about let's say wiping out a popula population, you know, to its last person as such, right? So these 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 more these ideas around let's say let's say uh, uh, international crimes are are uh, are contested as well, so 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 we need to we need to be vigilant and we need to actually work on on how let's say from civil society we can actually help shape let's say a kind of a, a, an architecture of justice if you would like. Uh, the case of Ogoniland and the, the violence of Shell uh, in Ogoniland should be known to, to a Dutch audience, right? Um, so I, I perhaps I don't need to go into much detail on this. Uh, and, and many groups such as Amnesty International have done amazing work to actually document the, the, the crimes of, uh, of Shell and their, and their collusion and collaboration with the Nigerian state you know, in, in Nigeria against the Ogoni people and, 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 the, and the oil pollution violence. Uh, 
What our contribution right now, or, or what we're working on at the moment, is working with the Movement for the Survival of the Ogoni People, a social movement organization that was founded by Ken Sarawiwa, the Ogoni activist who was executed by the Nigerian state in 1996, in order to build an oil pollution sort of database and platform, right, where, where, the where we can actually work with, with, with Mossop in order to build an advocacy tool uh, that, that they can use. Uh, and also towards building a criminal case. Uh, this is all the mo more important, uh, is I'm not sure if this has been clocked in the, in the Dutch press, but the Nigerian state you know, have passed laws to, to go back to, to, to Ogoniland to, to be able to dig for, dig for oil again, right? Which they had not been able to do since the Mossop had, had, had successfully fought them to, to kick them out, uh, kick them out of, of their territory. But what, what of course happened is that, is that, is that, um, is that the, the, the major pipelines from Ogoniland, from, from, from Nigeria, sort of, you know, with all the oil flows through their territory, right? So, so strategically, this is a very important sort of location. And it's crisscrossed with, uh, with, with oil infrastructure that is, that is collapsing, but at the same time that, is, uh, that has been for decades causing immense amount of, um, sort of violence against, against both the ecology and, and the people. Uh, I'll show you very quickly a couple of, couple of seconds of, of, uh, of, the, of, of some of this work we've been doing. We're, we've been building a, an oil spill Interpret database. has been working on behalf yeah. of the movement for the survival of the Ogoni people to gather up-to-date spatial evidence of the impacts of long-term oil pollution on the southern Niger Delta. First, we conducted a site analysis to map settlements, roads, public services, water bodies, oil infrastructure, and water wells, among others. Shell maintains a large network of crumbling oil infrastructure and pipelines that crisscross the Ogoni territory, which continues to enrich the company and the Nigerian state while perpetuating ecological harm and human rights violations for the Ogoni people. We use the United Nations Environment Program survey data and our own satellite imagery analysis to identify and map this toxic infrastructure in order to better understand the sources of pollution. Large sections of pipelines lie above ground and dangerously close to people's homes. Here is a photograph of a section that runs from Eleme Petrochemical Company through Okirika Town. Next, we mapped all available data on oil spills covering a period from 1985 to the present day to produce an up-to-date oil spill database. We used available oil spill quantity in barrels to produce a heat map and visualize the areas with a higher amount of hydrocarbons spilled on or near human settlements. <clears throat> the violence in Ogoniland uh, and responsibility of Shell, you know, in the, in, let's say, it in in the context of, let's say, an ecocide forensics, must make longer chains of agency, right? I.e., between the, the the elements of crimes, between the act, you know, the mental state, uh, the, the the but also the consequence of the context. And in this sense, uh, the, the 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 work we're doing now is is sort of very interested in looking at a, a new branch of what we might call a new kind of forensic tool, which is around attribution, right? Attribution is is is, is about uh, 
is, is, is against this idea of this abstraction of, of, of climate destruction, right? Of saying that, you know, uh, well, this is happening and there's no actual responsibility assign, uh, possible to assign to, to, let's say, specific actions of, let's say, big oil, right? And, uh, uh, and in this sense, what, what climate attribution tries to do, uh, and, and this is work that, that we're hoping to do with, with, the, with some of the scientists that, that worked on this report, is to actually connect uh, specific emissions of oil companies to specific climate uh, um, sort of specific sort of metrics of climate change, such as let's say warming oceans, right? Uh, and in this next uh, sort of short segment, uh, and, and we're about to sort of about to come to a close, we're, we're, we'll just show you let's say how we're beginning to do this work, and this has to do with let's say the, the rise in the intensity of storms in the Pacific, uh, let's say, to warming uh, oceans and connect connecting them to, let's say, the ac activities of oil companies. Storm tracks of major cyclones in the South Pacific from 1992 to 2018 show a pattern in the increase of intensity of cyclone strength at a rate of about nine kilometers per hour per decade. Cyclone Vilma was the first storm to still be classed as a tropical cyclone by the time it struck New Zealand, with 10 minutes sustained wind speeds of up to 185 kilometers per hour. Cyclone Winston was the most intense tropical cyclone in the Southern Hemisphere on record, with 10 minutes sustained wind speeds of 280 kilometers per hour. Record-breaking sustained winds of 300 kilometers per hour were observed over Koro Island in Fiji. Cyclone Donna was the most powerful off-season southern hemisphere cyclone ever recorded in the month of May, with 10 minutes sustained wind speeds of up to 205 kilometers per hour. Just, in tr just so we can kind of get to the very end, I'm skipping a very last part of that video where we actually show uh, a specific storm, Cyclone Pam, that struck Vanuatu, you know, and, and the, the ocean temperature that, that in relationship to that, and, and to show that as the storm developed, the ocean temperature was, had, was also sort of increasing, right? So, so these are, in a way, uh, we're not quite there yet, but these are all kind of like pieces of a puzzle, you know, and, and much more needs to be done to actually bring this kind of this data together. But, but the idea is that an ecocide forensics must actually address these longer chains of agency, you know, that, which, is, which is perhaps you know, the message that I'd like to sort of share with you. Um, but this, also, this work also has to support uh, um, the, the, the leadership or, or the lead that frontline states and civil society are taking, right? Uh, and, and in this sense, uh, on, on the issue of ecocide, it, it, it could not be any, 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 any more true. Um, and the, the, this is a, the, the, a, a statement that uh, we work very closely with the government of Vanuatu at, at, the, at the ICC. 
And this was a statement made by, at this year's uh, uh, Assembly of State Parties that just finished in The Hague, where uh, Ambassador John Licht uh, sort of is the first statesman uh, to at the ICC, you know, to actually speak about uh, ecocide and, and in order to sort of push this this forward. The Assembly of State Parties is certainly well positioned to help realize this potential. Most notably, an amendment of the wrong statute could criminalize acts that amount to ecocide. We believe this radical idea merits serious consideration. Well, thanks for it very much for listening. At the very end, I'd like to uh, just just say that that um, if anything, much more work needs to happen. Uh, this is sort of an ongoing uh, ongoing work for for us and many others uh, in order to build coalition to support the frontline groups, uh, the civil society, um, which which we are doing. Example in Vanuatu with the with the with the with an NGO called Further Arts. Um, but you also in this in this struggle, we also need to listen. And we need to listen um, to the ground and from the ground, and uh, and, and and they need to center on on the indigenous uh, testimonies and and their accounts uh, and so on. And uh, this is why it's uh, it's 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 important that that we find ways of, of collaborating, working together, and actually using you know the different sort of approaches and methods that that we have to sort of uh, to take this work forward. And for this, I'm very much looking forward to hearing uh, um, my my good friend Anya, Anya's work, um, who has been a, a huge kind of inspiration in, 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 the ter in terms of work in the Pacific. Um, and I hope I haven't taken too long and uh, hope we can keep, keep this going and to the conversation later. Thank you. <laughs>